0: Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. everybody. I hope you're doing well. Welcome to episode six. And this will be Crime and Beauty's first two-parter. So very much excited about that. But before we get started, I just wanted to mention the documentary, the Chris Watts documentary on Netflix called American Murder, The Family Next Door. And frankly, if you're a true crime fan as I am, you probably have already watched it. And Just a couple of comments. I mean, obviously, this guy was a giant piece of garbage. Uh, I don't know how you can justify murdering and annihilating your whole family. His wife, I understand he wasn't in love with her anymore, but come on, just get divorced. And she was pregnant with their son. And then he took the lives of his two young daughters, Bella and Cece, which I I don't know what runs through someone's mind. I mean, for, for it to have escalated to that point just because he wanted to live life with his girlfriend I mean it's crazy to me one other thing that I wanted to mention that really upset me that I did not recall from the coverage in the past because of course when this happened it was huge huge news but I get that Shanann might not have been everyone's best friend she clearly was a very strong-willed personality and dominant in the relationship but for anyone to have suggested that she deserved it that She got what was coming to her, that she pushed him. Give me a break. Nobody deserves to be murdered like that. Nobody deserves to be murdered, period. And again, I don't remember hearing all of this blowback and how her family was being harassed because, you know, she deserved it, she pushed him, blah, blah, blah. What a load of garbage. And I just think it's really disappointing that that ever was even on people's minds. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a tell, right? Women are vilified and demonized because they might have a strong personality. I mean, give me a break. So anyway, I I still recommend watching it. It's probably an hour and a half. um, Very disturbing, of course, at points. And you just want to sock him in the face 24-7 to kill three of his children and his wife just because he wanted to carry on an affair with someone. Yuck. Actually, one of my friends, she pointed out that his mistress looked quite a bit like his wife, Shanann, which is very creepy as well. But anyway, just something in the true crime world. Also, I don't know if you guys heard about that case in Japan with this individual that went by the name Hangman. I think I, I might cover this in a future episode, but basically would reach out to people that are were looking to commit suicide and then just murder them when they'd come to his apartment. Just Really crazy story. Definitely a serial killer, um, but very strange. So a lot of lot of crazy things going on in the news, uh, crime wise. Even with all of this election coverage, I mean, there's just wacky stuff all the time. So anyway, I hope that you guys are excited because, as I said, this is my first two-parter episode. And for this episode, we will be covering the case of William Bonin, the Freeway Killer. <laughs> Guys, So let's get started. But really quickly, one thing before we do, I know that on top of every episode I mentioned there's a listener advisory, but I really feel that it's necessary to say one more time in this particular case that it is extremely graphic. There is serial rape and murder involved. So if you are sensitive and it does involve children unfortunately as young as the age of 12. So if this is if that's something that really bothers you, I will say that the first episode is going to cover the bulk of the murder and rapes, but it is not for everyone, so please be warned. William Bonin, also known as the Freeway Killer, was an American serial killer and sex offender who murdered at least 21 boys and young men in Southern California in 1979 and 1980. He is suspected of committing a further 15 murders. Now, he usually selected young male hitchhikers, schoolboys, or occasionally male sex workers as his victims. They were aged 12 to 19, and they were either enticed or forced into his Ford Econoline van, where they were overpowered and bound hand and foot with a combination of handcuffs, wire, or cords. They were then sexually assaulted, extensively beaten about the face, head, and genitals, and tortured before typically being killed by strangulation with their own t-shirts, although some of them were stabbed or battered to death. In order to minimize the chances of a potential victim escaping from his vehicle, Bonin removed all inner handles from the passenger side and rear doors of his van. Now, I'm going to post a picture of the van, but it is like your ultimate serial killer van. And actually, I believe that Dean Corll, who was responsible for the Houston mass murders and definitely a case that I will cover at some point, one of my one of the most fascinating to me personally. But he also drove a Ford Econoline van, I'm pretty sure so. Definitely a creepy one, but anywho, they were overpowered and bound hand and foot with a combination of handcuffs and wire cords, as I mentioned. He also stowed ligatures, knives, household tools, and other instruments in the vehicle, so it made restraining and torturing his victims all that much easier. So basically, he outfitted this van to be a perfect murder van. And actually, I believe the nickname for the van was the death van. The victims were usually killed inside his van before their bodies were discarded alongside or close to various freeways in Southern California, hence the nickname the Freeway Killer. He was assisted by one or more of his four known accomplices, and we'll cover a little bit of that later in this episode, but it's kind of insane that this guy was one of the worst one of the most brutal serial killers you could ever imagine very sexually sadistic but somehow he had his little stooges to help him out so and to have four as well is it's very strange and makes you wonder what on earth was going on in the late 70s in california because man oh man was this a hot spot and in fact William Bonin is not the only freeway killer. A few others had this moniker, including Patrick Carney and Randy Kraft. They were also active in the same areas, and I believe both of them tended to um, go for males, but I do believe that they tended to be a little bit older. According to one attorney present throughout Bonin's subsequent confession, the escalating levels of brutality he exhibited towards his victims was sort of similar to that of a drug addict. So he required an ever greater increase of dosage to attain a satisfactory level of euphoria. This is somebody that had not only so much enjoyment from the the sexually sadistic behavior and torture, but he loved to kill. Now here's a good time I think to mention my main sources which was William Bonin the True Story of the Freeway Killer by Jack Rosewood and a couple of articles there was one in the New York Times that was rather short but called Testimony Graphic in Freeway Killings Case by Robert Lindsay and that was published in 1981 but really the bulk of my research has come from the Jack Rosewood book and you know it's interesting it's it's not the most compelling book, but it definitely covers, it shares a little extra details than you could find like on Wikipedia or Murderpedia. But surprisingly, there's not a ton of uh, source materials that I could find that really um, cover a lot, especially with regards to the victims, because that's always something that's important to me. I want to talk about who they were as much as possible and how this affected their families. So that's my main source. William George Bonin was born in Willimantic, Connecticut on January 8, 1947, to Robert and Alice Bonin. He was the middle child of three boys. Both of his parents were alcoholics and Robert Bonin was a compulsive gambler, often using up the family's grocery money to maintain his addiction. He was physically abusive to both his wife and all of his sons. The three Bonin boys were severely neglected and were often taken care of by sympathetic neighbors. They were placed in the care of their grandfather at one point, who was a convicted child molester, who had molested Alice when she was a child and a teenager. It's pretty much assumed that he abused his grandsons, too. When William was six, his mother placed him and his two brothers in an orphanage to protect them from their father's physical violence. Unfortunately, this did not provide much respite, as this orphanage was known for administering severe beatings to discipline the children, no matter how large or small the infarctions. For example, they partially drowned the children in toilet bowls or sinks filled with water and made them climb the stairs until their legs gave out. Although Bonin later freely discussed many aspects of his childhood and adolescence, he refused to discuss his memories of the orphanage beyond divulging that he consented to sexual advances from older males only if his abuser would tie his hands behind his back. He said that this position made him feel more secure. He stayed at the orphanage for three more years until he returned to live with his parents in the town of Mansfield. At the age of 10, Bonham was arrested for stealing vehicle license plates, and he was placed in a juvenile detention center for various minor crimes. While housed there, he was repeatedly physically and sexually abused by several people, including his adult counselor. Now, Four years later in 1961, facing the prospect of foreclosure on their home, Bonin's parents opted to relocate to California. The Bonin family settled in a modest home on Angel Street in the city of Downey. Shortly thereafter, Bonin's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. While living at this address, Bonin is known to have molested both his younger brother and several neighborhood children. Many of these children were lured into Bonin's home with a promise of alcohol, and all his known victims were younger than he was. Neighbors would report, quote, blood-curdling screams coming from the tract house in Downey, but police were never called, despite rumors that Bonham was buying beer and showing porn to the neighborhood teens. An estimated 35% of those who molest or sexually assault others were abused themselves, so the cycle of shifting from victim to abuser, sometimes known as vampire syndrome, is especially common in pedophiles with a preference for boys. Bonham seems to be no exception. In addition to these acts of molestation, Bonin is known to have committed several acts of robbery, petty theft, and grand theft in his teenage years. Shortly after graduating from high school in 1965, Bonin became engaged to a woman named Susan. This engagement was largely encouraged by his mother, who believed that this would squash her son's evident homosexuality, which we know that always works. Now, that same year of his graduation, he joined the U.S. Air Force and later served five months of active duty in the Vietnam War as an aerial gunner, logging over 700 hours of combat and patrol time. On one occasion, while under enemy fire, he risked his own life to save the life of a wounded fellow airman. He was later to claim his experience in Vietnam instilled a belief within him that human life is overvalued. He said he engaged in consensual sexual relations with both males and females in Vietnam and also later admitted to sexually assaulting two fellow soldiers at gunpoint during the period of the Tet Offensive. He ultimately served three years in the U.S. Air Force before he received an honorable discharge in October 1968. And you might wonder, how is that possible? But there's no way during that time those soldiers would have reported him, I'm sure, due to the embarrassment, which is so sad. Now, upon his discharge, Bonham returned to Downey to live with his mother, but shortly thereafter, he married his fiance, Susan. There's not a lot about Susan, not surprising. She probably wanted to distance herself as much as possible, but one thing she did say was that he would wake up from a recurring nightmare in tears, and once he told her about it. Quote, he told me he had the dream a lot of times. He would be in a bar alone, and he would walk up to a girl who had no face. He would buy her a drink and take her to a deserted place. There, he'd rape her, kill her, and bury her in a shallow grave. The couple soon divorced. Big surprise. In 1968, at age 21, Bonin committed sexual assaults on four boys. A 14-year-old named William, a 17-year-old named John, a 12-year-old named Larry, and an 18-year-old named Jesus. In each instance, he bound or otherwise restrained his victims before forcibly engaging in sodomy, oral copulation, and methods of torture, which included bludgeoning and squeezing his victims' testicles. Early the following year, he was arrested as he attempted to restrain a 16-year-old boy who he had lured into his vehicle. He told cops that they were lucky to have caught him as he felt he might have killed the boy. Bonin pleaded guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced to the Atascadero State Hospital as a mentally disordered sexual offender considered amenable to treatment in in 1971. While detained at this hospital, he was subjected to a battery of psychiatric examinations, which revealed that he possessed a higher-than-average IQ of 121, which is very odd because our previous criminal Tony Costa from episode 5 had the same IQ. Anyway, Bonin also displayed traits of manic depression in addition to damage to the prefrontal cortex of his brain, which would likely reduce his ability to restrain violent impulses. Bonin's physical examinations also revealed extensive scars on his head and buttocks, which he had likely sustained in the three years he had been housed at the Connecticut Juvenile Detention Center, although he claimed to have no memory of any of these abuse incidents. Two years after his arrival at the Atescadero State Hospital, he was sent to prison, declared unsuitable for further treatment, largely due to his repeatedly engaging in forceful sexual activity with male inmates. On June 11, 1974, he was released from prisons after doctors concluded that he was, quote, no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. Unbelievable. Literally, my hands are holding my face like home alone. It's so bad. And as you can probably tell, this proved to be a very fatal mistake that would cost many innocent lives. On September 8, 1974, he encountered a 14-year-old named David Allen McVicker hitchhiking in Garden Grove. McVicker accepted Bonin's offer to drive him to his parents' home in Huntington Beach. McVicker said that at first he was totally cool. There was nothing a least bit strange about him. Now, really quickly, I wanted to give you a warning. This is when it starts to get pretty brutal. Shortly after McVicker entered the vehicle, he was taken aback by Bonin asking him if he was gay. When McVicker asked Bonin to stop his car, Bonin produced a gun and drove the youth to a deserted field where he ordered him to undress, then beat and raped him. After beating and assaulting McVicker, Bonin began to strangle the youth with his own t-shirt, that immediately became apologetic when McVicker began screaming. He then drove McVicker home before casually stating, quote, we'll meet again. McVicker immediately informed his mother of the rape. She in turn notified Garden Grove police, and shortly thereafter, Bonin was charged with the rape and forcible oral copulation of a minor, and the attempted abduction of a 15-year-old, which had occurred two days after Bonin had assaulted McVicker. He pleaded guilty to these charges, and on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1975, he was sentenced to serve between 1 and 15 years' imprisonment at the California Men's Facility in San Luis Luis Obispo. Nailed it. He was released from detention on October 11th, 1978, after only three years, but he did get 18 months supervised probation. And I'm just going to say, not enough. Sadly, though McVicker survived this ordeal, he became the butt of jokes and was fired by an employer after they'd read an article about the story that suggested he had survived because he was an accomplice of sorts. This obviously was not true. He's had to live on disability due to the effects of the rape and to this day still has nightmares. Upon his release, Bonham moved to an apartment complex in Downey, approximately one mile from his mother's home and soon found employment as a truck driver for a Montebello delivery firm named Dependable Driveaway. He also established a reputation among teenage boys in his neighborhood as a gregarious individual who allowed them to socialize in his apartment and who bought them alcohol. In addition, he dated another young woman whom he regularly accompanied to Anaheim on Sundays to partake in her hobby of roller skating. I don't know what her name is. I don't know if he just made this up, but it sounds like it was legit, but I don't know how he's getting these ladies to go on dates with him. But anyway, shortly after moving to his apartment, Bonham became acquainted with a 43-year-old neighbor named Everett Frazier. Bonham became a regular attendee at the frequent parties Fraser held at his apartment, and through these social gatherings, he became acquainted with a 21-year-old named Vernon Butts and an 18-year-old named Gregory Miley. According to Fraser, quote, I had people coming to my house all the time. That's why he liked coming over to my place, because he knew he would meet a lot of young people through me. Vernon Butts was a porcelain factory worker and part-time magician, sorry to laugh, but can't help it, who held a fascination with occultism. It's just Butts the Magician Butts. Butts the Magic Dragon. No, I'm sorry. He later claimed to have been both fascinated with and terrified of Bonin. And Miley was an illiterate Texas native with an IQ of 56 who supported himself with casual work. I don't know what that work is, but apparently it was very casual. These two eventually became willing accomplices to Bonin in the murder spree to come. The first murder for which Bonin was charged was that of dark-haired 13-year-old hitchhiker named Thomas Glenn Lundgren. Lundgren was last seen leaving his parents' house in Reseda at 10.50 a.m. on the morning of May 28, 1979. His body, clad in only a t-shirt, shoes, and socks, was found that same afternoon in Agora. An autopsy revealed that Lundgren's penis and testicles had been removed, and his skull had sustained multiple fractures as a result of bludgeoning to his face and head. His throat had been slashed, and his body had extensive stab wounds. He had also been strangled to death. His underwear, jeans, and severed genitals were discovered strewn in a field close to his body. Bonin was assisted by Butts in Lundgren's murder and abduction. Butts is suspected of assisting Bonin with eight additional murders. And despite claiming in his formal confession to investigators after his arrest that he had participated in the murders out of fear of Bonin, Butts also informed investigators he had considered the killing spree, quote, a good little nightmare, and that after the first one, I couldn't do anything about it. He also told investigators that Bonin, quote, really loved those sounds of screams. He loved to hear them scream. He loved every minute of it. When interviewed by a reporter about the Lundgren murder after his eventual capture, Bonin denied responsibility and angrily stated that, I don't cut the dicks off little boys. What a gem this guy is. In mid-1979, Bonin was again arrested for molesting a 17-year-old boy in the coastal community of Dana Point. This violation of the conditions of his parole should have resulted in him being returned to prison. However, an administrative error committed prior to Bonin's scheduled court date resulted in his release. And once again, I want to hit my head. It's so bad. The mistakes are so bad. Now, Frazier, his neighbor, as you recall, drove to collect Bonin from the Orange County jail where he was being incarcerated. He later recollected that as he drove Bonin home, Bonin made a statement which he, Frazier, had interpreted at the time as an expression of remorse. Quote, no one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. And I think that was a misinterpretation, Mr. Fraser. Two months after the murder of Lundgren, on August 4th, Bonnet and Butts abducted 17-year-old Mark Shelton shortly after the youth left his Westminster home to walk to a movie theater near Beach Boulevard. Screams were heard from the vicinity of the Shelton household by neighbors, leaving a strong possibility that Shelton was abducted by force. The youth was later known to be violated with foreign objects, including a pool cue, causing his body to enter a state of shock which proved fatal. His body was then discarded in San Bernardino County. Mark's poor father, Don, recalls upon learning that his son was murdered, quote, "...I was consumed with rage. One day I walked out into my garden, saw my scarecrow perched there, and demolished it with a shovel. I just bashed it to pieces." If that hadn't happened, I might have done something worse later on. The next day, Bonnen and Butz encountered a 17-year-old German exchange student named Marcus Grabs, who was attempting to hitchhike from the Pacific Coast Highway. He was on a backpacking tour through the United States, getting in one last big adventure before settling into adulthood. Grabs was bound with lengths of cord and ignition wire and driven to Bonin's home where he was sodomized, beaten, and stabbed a total of 77 times. That is called overkill, people. His nude body was discarded in Malibu Creek with yellow nylon rope around his neck and an electrical cord around one of his ankles. Davis Kushner, a homicide investigator for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, later commented that the killer was like a rabid dog that had gone insane and doesn't know when to stop biting. On August 27th, Bonin and Butts abducted a 15-year-old blonde boy named Donald Ray Hayden. On August 27th, Bonin and Butz abducted a 15-year-old blonde youth with a toothy grin named Donald Ray Hayden from Hollywood. Donald was born in Cincinnati, but following his parents' divorce, had joined his mother and younger siblings to California for a fresh start. As is common for teenagers and children from a broken home, Donald got into a bit of trouble and lived with his grandparents for a while while he played baseball and followed the career of his idol, Pete Rose. Hayden was last seen alive walking down Santa Monica Boulevard at 1 a.m. His body was found by construction workers later that same morning in a dumpster located near the off-ramp of the Ventura Freeway. Prior to his death by ligature strangulation, Hayden had been bound, beaten about the face, sodomized, then stabbed in the neck and the genitalia and bludgeoned around the skull. He had burn marks and bruising, and like Mark Shelton, had been violated rectally with a foreign object or fist. Evident attempts had also been made to remove his testicles and slash his throat. I just need to pause for a second. It's so bad. So, so bad. Deep breath. Now, two weeks after the murder of Haydn, Bonnet and Butts encountered 17-year-old La Mirada youth named David Lewis Murillo or Murillo, I'm not sure, but he was cycling to a movie theater. And on that weekend, what was topping the box offices were Apocalypse Now, which is a great film, and Monty Python's Life of Brian, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember enjoying thoroughly. Marilla was lured into Bonin's van, where he was bound, repeatedly raped, extensively bludgeoned about the skull with a tire iron, then strangled with a ligature before his nude body was thrown over an embankment onto a bed of ivy alongside Highway 101. Eight days after this murder, an 18-year-old Newport Beach grocery grocery store clerk named Robert Christopher Wierostek was abducted as he cycled to his job. He never made it to work, and his body was found on September 19th along Interstate 10. Bonin is not known to have killed again until about November 1st, when he and Butts abducted and murdered an unidentified young man who was 5'10 in height and estimated to be between 19 and 25 years old. The victim was, again, savagely beaten, strangled to death before his body was discarded in an irrigation ditch along State Route 99 south of Bakersfield. And although never identified, Bonin later estimated the age of his victim to be 23 and freely admitted to, brace yourself, inserting an ice pick into the victim's nostrils and ear prior to his murder approximately four weeks later by himself, he abducted and strangled a 17-year-old bellflower youth named Frank Dennis Fox. His mother, Jerry, recalls, quote, he'd been home a few days earlier and I gave him some stuff for his apartment. He had wanted me to cut his hair. His body was found two days later alongside Ortega Highway, five miles east of Interstate I-5. The body itself bore signs of extensive blunt force trauma to the face and head, with ligature marks on the wrists and ankles indicating he had been bound throughout his ordeal. No clothing or other evidence was discovered at the scene. However, there were green carpet fibers in his pubic hair and signs of sexual activity. As Christmas drew closer, Bonham once again went on the hunt for a new victim. He trolled the freeways on weekends, leaving Sundays for skating with his girlfriend. Ten days after the murder of Fox, a 15-year-old Long Beach youth named John Frederick Kilpatrick disappeared after leaving his mother's home to visit some friends. John was the sixth of seven children, and his parents were in the process of divorcing. His body was then found on December 13th. But he was not reported missing until February, however, because friends had mistakenly reported seeing him at the mall. And because he was dealing with his parents' divorce, his mother Priscilla said, I didn't think he had run away. We just thought he was thinking things out and didn't want to scare him off. Sadly, a friend later called to tell her that a body was found with tattoos that appeared to match John's. A skull wearing a hat on his right bicep and an F on his right hand. He had remained known as John Doe until August 5, 1980. To kick off the new year of 1980, on January 1, Bonin, by himself brutalized and strangled a 16-year-old Rialto youth named Michael Francis McDonald. His fully clothed body was found alongside Highway 71 in western San Bernardino County two days after his murder, although his body was not identified until March 24th. On February 3rd, Bonin drove from Downey to Hollywood in the company of his new assistant, 18-year-old Gregory Matthews Miley, with the intention of finding a new victim. The two encountered 15-year-old Charles Miranda standing close to the Starwood nightclub. He was hitchhiking along Santa Monica Boulevard, and according to Miley, both Bonin and Miranda engaged in consensual sexual activity in the rear van as he drove. Miranda was then overpowered and bound by Bonin, who then asked the youth how much money he had in his possession. When Miranda responded he had about $6, Bonin ordered Miley to take the youth's wallet before raping his victim. Miley also attempted to rape Charles, but was unable to sustain an erection. He was bisexual, but preferred relations with women. Still, his inability to participate in the rape infuriated him, so he used sharp objects in the van instead, brutally assaulting Charles to hide his embarrassment. Miley then claims that Bonin whispered to him, "'Kid's going to die.'" Miley allegedly replied, "'Why don't you just let the kid go?' But Bonham refused, saying, "'No, because he'll know us and he'll know the van.'" Bonin then strangled Miranda to death with a t-shirt and a tire iron as Miley repeatedly jumped on Miranda's chest. His nude corpse was then dumped in an alleyway alongside East 2nd Street in Los Angeles. Five minutes after the pair discarded Miranda's body, Bonin said to Miley, quote, I'm horny again, let's go and do another one. Miley alleged to have protested at first, saying he wanted to go home. But a few hours later in Huntington Beach, the pair encountered 12-year-old James McCabe at a bus stop on the corner of Beach Boulevard and Slater Avenue. McCabe was lured into Bonin's van on the promise he would be driven to his intended destination of Disneyland. According to Miley, the boy entered the rear van voluntarily as Bonin drove to the grocery store parking lot, where he parked the van and entered the rear of the vehicle. Miley then drove in an aimless manner for what he described as a very, very long distance. As he drove, Miley continually heard McCabe crying as Bonin beat and raped him before forcing the boy to sleep in his arms. Miley then joined Bonin in beating the child and crushing his neck with a tire iron simply because he, quote, felt like it. Bonin then strangled McCabe to death with his own t-shirt before the pair discarded his fully clothed beaten body alongside a dumpster in the city of Walnut. His body was found three days later. Bonin later told a reporter from KNXT TV that of all of his victims, quote, that little kid was the easiest one to kill. James's mother, Anna, was haunted by the death, saying, You know that country song, No Future in the Past? There isn't. The next day, Bonham was arrested for violating the conditions of his parole, and he was remanded into custody at the Orange County Jail until March 4th. Ten days later after his release, he abducted and killed an 18-year-old Van Nuys boy named Ronald Gatlin. But Gatlin was abducted shortly after he had left a friend's home. He was beaten, sodomized, and suffered several deep, perforating ice-pick wounds to the ear and neck before being strangled with a ligature. His body-bound hand and foot was found the following day in the city of Duarte. One week later, Bonin lured a 14-year-old named Glenn Barker into his van as the youth hitchhiked to school. Barker was also raped, beaten, and strangled to death with a ligature. His body bore evidence of numerous burns to the neck, which had been inflicted with a lit cigarette. At 4 p.m. the same day, a 15-year-old named Russell Ruff was abducted from a bus stop in Garden Grove. Ruff had been bound, beaten, and strangled to death after an estimated eight hours in captivity before his body was discarded alongside that of Barker in Cleveland National Forest. Their nude bodies were found on March twenty third. One Friday evening in March 1980, Bonin offered 17-year-old William Ray Pugh, I think it's pronounced. It's P U G H, but I think it's Pugh. He offered him a ride home as the pair left his neighbor, Everett Fraser's residence. Within minutes of accepting this ride, Bonin asked Pugh whether he would like to engage in sex with him. Pugh later stated that he panicked and stuttered upon hearing this question, and after sitting in silence for several minutes, attempted to leave the vehicle once Bonin had slowed the van at a stoplight. In response, Bonin wordlessly leaned across and grabbed Pugh by the collar, dragging him into the passenger seat. According to Pugh, Bonnen then confided in him that he enjoyed abducting young male hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday nights, whom he then restrained and abused before strangling them to death with their own t shirts in a matter of fact tone. Bonin then informed him that, quote, If you want to kill somebody, you should make a plan and find a place to, to dump the body before you even pick a victim. Bonin then informed Pugh he had chosen to refrain from assaulting and killing him not out of sentiment, but rather because they had been seen leaving Frazier's party together. Pugh was then driven home without being assaulted. Somehow, after this ordeal, Pugh was intrigued by Bonin's criminal activities and decided to become yet another assistant. Pugh himself had already gotten a long rap sheet, but it was filled with petty crimes. But once he teamed up with Bonin, things took a much darker turn. One thing I wanted to mention was that the bodies of Glenn Baker as well as Russell Ruff both had green carpet fibers in their pubic hair. Glenn's mother was in remission from cervical cancer when she learned of her son's murder, and the news was even more painful, since she had given him money so he wouldn't have to resort to hitchhiking. His grandfather, Elza Rogers, said, He was not supposed to get into the van with anyone, but you know how these boys are. His mother later attended Bonin's trial religiously to represent her son. She would pass away three years after his conviction, but not before he was executed, sadly. Rogers said, She told me she would have liked to see Bonin die. It was the only regret she had. She really hated him. Now that's where we're going to stop for part one. And my goodness, I hope you're doing okay because that was horrific. This guy was an absolute monster. (laughs) Okay then, so to lighten up the mood a little bit, today's something beautiful is going to be L'Oreal's Voluminous Mascara. It's about maybe 10 bucks. You can get deals on it at your local pharmacy and its it has been my go-to mascara for years and years. And of course, you know, there have been occasions where I've tried more expensive, um, I guess more quote unquote designer name brands. But quite frankly, this does the trick. I personally use the brown black. I used to use the um, carbon black, which, you know, is is awesome. But for me, since I'm very uh, fair skinned and my hair is quite blonde, I, I figure the brown black is a little bit of a softer look. And actually, fun fact for you, Marilyn Monroe used brown black mascara. She did not use full black mascara. So anyway, that's my shade color that I prefer just to make it a little softer but truly a fan of all of them they also make waterproof ones as well so highly recommend makes your lashes nice and beautiful and not clumpy that's a big thing about mascara that's frustrating is when it gets super clumpy and flakes easily and in fact i think some of the more designer brands i've tried have tended to do that more so than the l'oreal it's one of those it's one of those beauty products that's i think iconic and classic and it if it ain't broke don't fix it so check that one out Alright guys, this is the end of part one of William Bonin, the Freeway Killer. I hope you found it interesting and you're doing mentally and emotionally okay after all of that. The next episode is going to cover a lot more of his uh, capture, arrest, incarceration, and subsequent execution so it'll be a little bit lighter in terms of the actual descriptions of murders and rapes thankfully I uh, could definitely use a break from that so anyway I hope to hear from you guys I'd love to hear any sort of feedback please rate and review you can follow crime and beauty on instagram facebook um, listen on spotify apple Podcasts, amazon music audible or you can go to crime and beauty dot podbean.com and as i said you know love to hear from you guys feel free to shoot me an email with suggestions feedback anything at crime and beauty podcast at gmail.com and until next time thanks for listening and stay beautiful